2 Samuel chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, it says, It happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house and from the roof he saw a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David went, sent, and inquired about the woman and someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? Then David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. And the woman conceived. So she sent and told David and said, I am with child. Then David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war prospered. And David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah departed from the king's house and a gift of food from the king followed him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. So when they told David, saying, Uriah didn't go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Did you not come from a journey? Why did you not go to your house? And Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Wait here today and tomorrow, and I will let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now when David called him, he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. And at evening he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. So it was while Joab besieged the city that he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew there were valiant men. Then the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the people of the servants of David fell and Uriah the Hittite died also. Then Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war and charged the messenger saying, When you finish telling the matters of the war to the king, if it happens that the king's wrath rises and he says to you, why did you approach so near to the city when you fought? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Was it not a woman who cast a piece of a millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you go near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah The Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent by him. And the messenger said to David, Surely 
The men prevailed against us and came out to us in the field. Then we drove them back as far as the entrance of the gate. The archers shot from the wall at your servants. And some of the king's servants are dead. And your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. So encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. You'll note that the scriptures are painfully honest. They paint people in graphic terms of great faith and great failure. This is one of the reasons why we know that the Bible is true. Because if the Bible was just a set of mythical renditions and family memories, then you would think that they would paint a picture much better of David. When the Bible mentions the sins of its heroes, it's not meant to glamorize or validate or encourage sin. As a matter of fact, the Bible states the facts and draws out the lessons. As a matter of fact, in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 12 it says, For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. Even the Bible draws a line as it paints the picture. And you know, one of the big lies we face in our society is the constant temptation to believe the mass media's message that sin is attractive, sin is wonderful, sin is glamorous. Yes, the sight that I hate to... Yes, the Titanic's about to sink. Yes, the boat is going down. But who cares if two young lovers satisfy themselves in the back of the boat or in the back of the car for that matter? Let me ask you a question. Do you suppose that one deed sets the tone or defines a life? How would you like it if someone painted a picture of you and the thing that they chose to do was to take you not at your best but at your worst? And not only did they take you at your worst, but they decided to take you at your worst and that becomes the defining moment that defines you. The list of failed leaders is very, very large. And here we see the failure and the fall and the fallout of David. And the failure and the fall and the fallout seem to be one of those things that evangelical Christianity loves to embrace. It's hard to go a decade without a Jimmy Swaggart, without a Jim Baker, without a Marvin Gorman. You may not know who Marvin Gorman is, but he's the guy who blew the whistle on Jimmy Swaggart. And of course, Ted Haggart. You look at the details of these circumstances and you know that you have an effective ministry when Jay Leno gets up 
and for a week begins to make fun of you and Christianity. I'm going to ask you a question. If God wrote a chapter in the Bible about your greatest failure, if he wrote a chapter in the Bible about your most despicable deed, would it include adultery and murder? Maybe not. Maybe it wouldn't include sex, lies, and murder. Maybe you've never done some, something quite so raw. But I suspect you wouldn't want your failures shown in living color and on the big screen or on the World Wide Web. Can you imagine your failure becoming the subject of endless sermons, major motion pictures, TV broadcasts and radio and books. I suspect only President Clinton and Tiger Woods have received as much coverage as David. David killed a bear and a lion and a giant. David slew the enemies of Israel. He wrote hundreds of songs. He unites the kingdom. He moves the capital. He recovers the Ark of the Covenant. He is called a man after God's own heart. And we've already seen as we've watched the life of David that he's committed little sins. And he's committed medium-sized sins. And he's committed giant-sized whoppers. One of the most powerful things we can learn about ourselves is our enormous capacities to sin. The only difference between David's sin and my sin, God in his mercy didn't make my most egregious sin into a chapter in the Bible for the whole world to read. David and many failed leaders, both public and private, have several things in common. Their sins were intensified because of who they were, and the way they dealt with it. You've probably known that a person will drive drunk almost every day on the streets of Denver, but if a police officer is pulled over, if a state trooper is pulled over, it makes nine news. And you want to know why? Because to whom much is given, much is required. You know the answer. David would later Regret with anguish and bitter tears this chapter. After Nathan's confrontation in chapter 12, David will write Psalm 51. Because you need to understand something. Sin is more than just something that happens. It's more than just an event. And it's more than just a thing that happens. Sin always involves people. Sin is never a private matter. Sin always involves more than one person. And you might even in your mind at this very moment begin to think about what you think is a private and a personal and a lonely and a not open to public scrutiny sin. But make no mistake about it. Sin always involves the sinner and God. And that's why it's never personal. It's never private. It's never individual. And when we begin in chapter 11, it says, It happened 
in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel and they destroyed the people of Ammon and they besieged Rabbah. Remember, this is the place of the Ammonites that we learned about earlier. This is the tiny kingdom that is south and east of the Dead Sea. And while Joab is besieging Rabbah, Satan is laying siege to the king's heart. There's two wars and there's two fronts. David should have been fighting. But he was going to fight a different kind of a battle. It says, then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and he walked on the roof of the king's house. There in the Middle East, almost all of the roofs are, are flat. It's very much like if you've ever been to New Mexico, where you'll see that they've got these houses that have ladders and that the roof itself becomes a porch that you can enjoy the countryside, so to speak. And it says that from the roof, he saw a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful to behold. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? Then David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity. And this is going to become an important point in the story. This means that she has had her regular cycle, which means that she couldn't have been pregnant. And the very fact that she's just had her cycle means that the pregnancy without question is going to be because of her involvement with David. And it may have happened in the spring of the year, but it certainly doesn't happen in the spring of David's life. He's no spring chicken. Most Bible scholars believe that David is maybe 50-something years old. And so, clearly we're told in the Bible to flee youthful lusts. But make no mistake about it, passion can strike anywhere, at any time. Even in your 30s. Even in your 40s. I know it's hard for some of you young people to believe that, but it's true. Passion can strike even older, more mature Christians. And we may have hard battles with sin in our youth, but we are also run the same risks when we're older. And sin often comes when we are bored. You've probably heard it say that idle hands are the devil's workshop. And in a very real sense, it's true. When you have a lot of time on your hands, sin often comes when we're bored. And that's when we make those stupid, self-indulgent decisions that come back to haunt us. And so here's what we learn right from the start, that sin is no respecter of seasons. It can come in the spring of your life, in the fall of your life, in the winter of your life. So where was David in his life? He's a seasoned king. He's victorious. He's wealthy. Was David supposed to be fighting the good fight with Joab? Most Bible teachers believe that that's exactly what he should have been doing. He was a lover, but he was also a fighter. And it could be argued that he should have been fighting, and he shouldn't have been at home, and he shouldn't have been self-indulgent, and he shouldn't have been careless, and he shouldn't have been foolish. But that's what sin does, doesn't it? It, it begins to play in your mind all of the things that you could have, should have, would have, that you should have, could have, would have been doing. 
And one evening, David got out of his bed and he walked onto the roof. And from the roof, he could see a woman bathing in verse 2. But you would be making a very serious mistake if you thought, wow, this just happened out of the clear blue sky. Here he is fighting giants and defeating people and being gracious. And you would be wrong, wrong, wrong because you don't just wake up one morning and gaze out on your roof and begin an adulterous relationship which leads to murder. There was something fundamentally flawed that you could trace all the way back in David's life. In verse 2, it says, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. And by the way, when the Bible says someone is beautiful, it means way more than pretty. It means way more than handsome. It means gorgeous and elegant. And when the Bible says very beautiful, it means take your breath away. Drop dead splendiferous. It means palms sweat, pores open, heart races, hormones rush, throat closes, eyes burn, and the hairs begin to stand up on the back of your arms. That's what we're talking about. That kind of pretty. And the book of James gives us a perfect picture. In James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15, it says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he, or she for that matter, is drawn away by his or her own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when it is full grown, it brings forth death. And so for the person who wrongly says, well... If God didn't want this to happen, why did he put a naked, beautiful woman on top of the roof? Why did he allow me to get cable? Why did he allow me to surf the channels? Why did he allow me to do this? And why did he allow me to do that? Why did God bring this perfect man? Why did God bring this perfect woman into my life? Did it ever occur to you that God didn't bring this man or this woman into your life? That it was in fact a satanic setup? In order to destroy your life? The Bible says he saw Bathsheba. And clearly, under most circumstances, sin is activated by sight. But it's not always true. Blind people can activate sin in their life simply by their imagination. I was talking to another person on the radio program and they were asking me questions about those passages of scripture where Jesus says, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your hand offends you, cut it off. And I was trying to tell the person that Jesus is speaking in hyperbole. He's exaggerating a point in order to make a point. He isn't saying, If you see something, pluck your eye out. Or if you touch something, cut your hand off. Because guess what? If you cut one hand off, do you still have another hand? If you have one eye, will you lose the other eye? Is it true that without hands and eyes, you could still find a way to disobey God? The answer is yes. David's 
sin was not the first look, and this is important, ladies and gentlemen, it's not the first look that gets you into trouble, it's the second look. It isn't when you're driving down the road and you see the Victoria's Secret sign on the side of the road. By the way, do you know what the Victoria's Secret is? She's naked underneath those clothes. I don't know how they could not know that secret. It's not the billboard. It's not the catalog. It's not the first look. It's the second look. It's the second look which causes you to pause and to linger. And that's exactly what David's mistake begins with. His mistake begins with failing not only to not take the second look, but the moment that he takes the second look, there is something that drains out of his mind and is and out of his imagination and he fails to think about the consequences and he ignores the word of God in Exodus chapter 20 verse 14 it's so clear you couldn't make it any clearer you shall not commit adultery we would be kidding ourselves if we think that he forgot the Bible he didn't forget it he ignored it. David could have defeated the temptation by remembering and obeying the word of God. And that becomes maybe one of the most important lessons that you will ever learn. That when you're faced with a test and when you're faced with a temptation, you can ask and answer this question. What does the Bible have to say about what I'm dealing with right at this very moment? The sin began as not just an image in his mind, but a desire in his imagination. We imagine what it would be like to be with that person. We undress that person. And then we consume that person. And that's exactly what David did. It began in his imagination. And you might be thinking, well, that's not so bad. No harm, no foul. But with the imagination comes Desire. By the way, is Bathsheba to blame for her Middle Eastern exhibitionism? Well, clearly, she's not completely without fault. The Bible doesn't seem to condemn Bathsheba. At least we're not given any indication that it does. One well-known scholar, Raymond Brown, offers this insight. He writes, quote, When we read this terrible story, we instinctively think of the offense as David's sin, but this attractive woman cannot be entirely excused. Bathsheba was careless and foolish, lacking the usual Hebrew modesty, or she certainly would have washed in a place where she knew she could be seen. From her rooftop, she would have looked out at the royal palace and she must have known that she could be seen. It's not enough to merely avoid sin ourselves. The New Testament insists that Christians must ensure that they don't become stumbling blocks to others. That's what it says in Romans chapter 14, verses 12 and 13. Now, if David had gone to war, he wouldn't have seen Bathsheba that night. If she had thought seriously about her action, she wouldn't have put temptation in his path. <laughs> I hate Facebook. People contact you. 
Hi, this is so-and-so. Do you remember when we were 12 years old? Do you remember when we were 13 years old? Do you remember when you were 14 years old? I'm just, you know, you go back in time and space. I see England. I see France. I see someone's. Yeah, you know it. You know it too. I see England. I see France. I see someone's underpants. Do you think about the way you look? Do you think about that you could cause someone to stumble? Do you ever put yourself or others in an awkward position? Clearly, she's minimum done that. But look at verse 3. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, well, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? Notice what happens. David has this thought in his imagination. But then that thought surrenders to his will. I'm the king. I'm the king. I'm the king. I can do a background check on this girl. I have access to the computer and the database. I can look up her social security number and her driver's license number. I have servants. God, find out who this little lammy pie is. David's will surrenders to his power and surrenders to his authority and surrenders to his resources. David's Imagination surrenders to his will, and his will surrenders into action. But at this point, do you think he understands what his actions are going to do and what it's going to cause? First of all, David discovers that she's the wife of a soldier under his command. And, and Uriah is not just any soldier, he's one of David's mighty men. And remember what I told you about the, the mighty men? Imagine Chuck Norris. Imagine Jet Li. Imagine all of these people who can kill you. She's not only the wife of a soldier under his command. She's the daughter of Eliam. And you may not know who Eliam is, but his father was a man named Ahithophel. And Ahithophel was a trusted advisor in David's inner circle. In other words, this is a man who is a member of his executive staff who he calls on on a regular basis in order to make him help him make the most difficult decisions for the kingdom's sake. And Ahithophel, by the way, would later betray David. And support Absalom in his bid to take over his father's throne. Because for whatever reason, that's the part that our brain disengages from. We forget the simple statement, sin always has consequences. You may think it doesn't, but you would be wrong. You may hope they don't, but they do. You may pretend that they don't, but they always do. And I think David fell into a trap that many people fall into. He fall, falls into the same trap that the so-called evangelical leaders fall into. I'm the pastor of a great church. I have a radio and television ministry. 
Tens of thousands of people hear me every day. I do this and I do that and I do this and I, oh, wow, wow. God uses me. God uses me as a source of blessing. God uses David. God loves David. And clearly the kingdom is experiencing blessing. It is experiencing growth. It is experiencing expansion. Yes, God is with David. But he begins to make small concessions. And then he makes larger concessions. Recently, a leader in one of the largest black churches in America was convicted of embezzling monies meant to build black churches that had been burned to the ground by southern racists. He allegedly had an affair with another official and then they apparently stole hundreds of thousands of dollars and they began to live this lavish lifestyle and here was their justification. We earned it. We earned it? Remember in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 13, it says, And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he had come from Hebron, and he had more sons, and he had more daughters which were born to David. He completely ignored what the Bible said in Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 17. Remember, the Lord spoke to Moses and he said, When you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you and possess it and dwell in it, And say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around you. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. Did God choose David? Yes. One from among your brethren. Is he a Jew from a Jewish tribe? Yes, he's from the tribe of Judah. You shall set as a king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother, but he shall not multiply horses for himself. Okay. Nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. Okay. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. You don't go back to the world. You don't go back to the place of enslavement. Neither shall you multiply wives for yourself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. In Deuteronomy, here's what the Lord said. Don't multiply horses. Why? Because in that ancient culture and society, it was an arms race. Horses were like tanks and ships and planes in our culture. You multiply horses in order to create a huge defense. Don't multiply horses. Don't multiply wives. Don't multiply silver and gold. And David has no problem when it comes to the horses. David has no problems when it comes to getting rich. But the ladies, the ladies, the ladies, the ladies, the ladies. Question. Does David already have a harem full of ladies? You know what this is? It's positive proof. David is positive proof that multiple partners do not satiate the sexual drive. And just in case David may have been wrong, his son Solomon has 300 wives and 700 concubines. That's 1,000 ladies. David makes the mistake that many men and women make The mistake that somehow more is better. But I want to ask you a question. Does more sex, does more drugs, does more power, does more money 
make you happy? If that were true, then it should be that the people who have the most sex and the most drugs are the happiest people in the world. But has it been your experience that prostitutes and drug addicts are the most satisfied and happy people in the world? Has that been your experience? Has it been your experience that the people who have the most amount of money are freest when it comes to marital problems or other issues? David's preoccupation with his own needs slowly turned him away from the Lord. And your preoccupation with your own needs will turn you away from prayer and it will turn you away from Bible study and it will turn you away from fellowship and it will turn you away from the word of God and pretty soon your tragedy, your needs become the focus of your attention. When we turn to sin to satisfy us, we turn away from the Lord and when we turn to sin to satisfy us, we are in effect admitting you're not enough. I need something more. I need something more than what you're willing to give me, Lord. It's not just peace that I want. It's not just forgiveness that I want. It's not just the promise of heaven that I want. It's not just being turned away from the gates of hell that I want. I want more. I want more. I want more. David's lust and polygamy secretly begin to erode his character and his integrity. And that's exactly, that's exactly, that's exactly what will happen when you begin to have this unhealthy preoccupation with yourself. By the way, David's sin made David vulnerable. Between chapters 5 and 11, David's doing pretty good. He, he's united the kingdom. He's moved the capital. He's defeated his enemies. He's shown grace to the less fortunate. He's exercised mercy and compassion on the people that he promised he would. And even the people who didn't deserve it. And now this. Now this. What happened? What happened? Success, money, fame, power. His own reality TV show? Sometimes the most difficult spiritual times can result in the most financially lucrative of times. I've only watched bits and pieces of John and Kate plus eight. I think I remembered when the first came on and I read somewhere like in People Magazine or something, didn't they make some sort of confession of Christ? Didn't they present themselves as a family that went to church and a family that loved the Lord and a family that read their Bible and a family that wanted to exercise godliness and respect towards one another? And then there's this downward spiral. The rich are tempted to trust their riches. The powerful are tempted to trust their power. And the illusion is further fed when rich and powerful people seem to get away with their sins. But what does the Bible say? God is not mocked. What a person sows, that also will they... Will you get away with it? 
Will you get away with it if your wife comes charging at your Cadillac Escalade with your, with your custom-made nine iron? Hard times have a way of making people bitter or better, and I think you know that. Hard times cause many people to trust in the Lord. But for many people, hard times cause them to turn away from the Lord. What do you suppose the difference is? What is it about the pressure and what is it about the problem and what is it about the pain that causes some people to cry out to God and to love the Lord and submit to the Lord and humble themselves to the Lord and others to fold under the pressure? Pride is the most dangerous when it's flying high. And by the way, dependence on God makes you humble. But sin makes you stupid. But it also makes you vulnerable. It promotes isolation. Sinful people don't want to be accountable. Pastors to their churches, husbands to their wives, wives to their husbands, children to their parents, students to their teachers, teachers to the administration, presidents to people, leaders to citizens. Sin says, when it's time to relax, one beer stands clear. When it's time to relax, sin says, it's time to indulge yourself. You've earned it. That house, that car, that new Apple Eye tablet. Yeah, you have a computer. Yes, you have an iPhone. Yes, you have an unlimited plan. You have it all. But somehow this Apple tablet, I'm sure, is going to make all my dreams come true. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book Temptation wrote, In our members there is a slumbering inclination towards desire, which is both sudden and fierce. With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery of the flesh. All at once a secret smoldering fire is kindled. The flesh burns and it bursts into flames. It makes no difference whether it's sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge or love of fame and power or greed for money. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. Remember those words, by the way. At that moment, God becomes quite unreal. He loses all reality, and only desire for the creature is real. The only reality is the devil. Satan does not here fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. The lust thus aroused envelops the mind and will of man in the deepest darkness. The, dark, the powers of clear discrimination of decisions are taken from us. The questions present themselves as, is what the flesh desires really sin in this case? And is it really not permitted to me? Yes, even expected of me now, here in this particular situation, to appease desire. It, it is here that everything within me rises up against the word of God. Therefore, the Bible teaches us in times of temptation in the flesh, there's one command. Flee. Flee fornication. Flee idolatry. Flee youthful lust. Flee the lusts of the world. There's no resistance to Satan other than flight. Every struggle against one's lust in one's own strength 
is doomed to failure. And then it says in verse 5, And the woman conceived. So she sent and told David and said, I'm with child. Remember what the Bible says? Sin, when it conceives, brings forth death. Bathsheba is pregnant. So she sends a message to the king. David, I'm pregnant. By the way, when our sin catches up with us, we always have two choices. Own up or bone up. Come clean, stay dirty. It's always the case, isn't it? Come clean, stay dirty. Come clean, stay dirty. Come clean, stay dirty. David could have said, okay, okay, I'm going to confess my sin to God. I'm going to confess my sin to the counselors. I'm going to confess my sin to the nation. I'm going to confess my sin to Uriah. I'm going to face the consequences of my sin, even if it means losing the crown, if it means losing the kingdom, if it means losing my life. And I remember what the scripture said, the adulterer shall be put to death. I'm going to face the consequences. This is what he should have done. By the way, confessing your sin doesn't ever, ever, ever thwart the plan of God. I'm going to repeat that because it's too important for you to miss. Confessing your sin never thwarts the plan of God. Well, it's God's plan that we be together. It's God's plan that I be the pastor of the church. It's God's plan that this be this way. It's God's plan that our marriage be restored. It's God's plan. It's God's plan. It's God's plan. Whatever you think God's plan is, you are not going to further God's plan by remaining in your sin. Committing the sin and confessing the sin doesn't thwart the plan of God. Committing the sin may change the way God ultimately accomplishes his plan. It may change the way he accomplishes his purpose, but he will accomplish his purpose. So here's David's other plan. David's other option is to go the route of deception and hypocrisy. So here's your, here's your choices, David. Confess your sin. Hypocrisy and deception. You've read the book. What do you suppose he opts for? I think I'm going to go with plan B. Remember in that very famous movie when the Knights Templar says to the hero, he chose poorly. David's plan set in motion a series of events with horrific consequences. Uriah is going to die. The baby is going to die. David's own children are going to usurp his authority. One son of David is going to sexually assault his own half-sister. One half-brother is going to kill his own half-brother. One son is going to actually try to seize the throne. He is going to set in motion a series of circumstances. If for some reason someone could have grabbed him by the throat and choked him, you know the, 
the story. Shakespeare said it the best. Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. It was only much later when country western stars picked up the phrase, having my baby, what a lovely way of saying how much you love me. But there's a huge problem. In verses 6 and 7, it says, Then David said to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war prospered. But let me ask you a question. Do you think he really cares? His brain is in a fog. And in his fog-filled brain, he comes up with a plan. It's a half-baked plan, but a plan nonetheless. Not quite in the middle. It's not completely thought through because he's, he's, he's trapped. Is there any way out of this pain? Is there any way out of this humiliation? Is there any way that the public exposure can be somehow dealt with? Is there any way? Is there any way? Is there, other than plan A and plan B, is there, is there some other way? And the devil says, yes. Yes, yes, hide your sin, cover it up, cover up your nakedness. David, no one wants to see your hiney. When we panic, we don't make good choices. Okay, I know what I'll do. I'll call Uriah home, okay? I'll give him a leave of absence. His wife is such a hottie, he will go, he'll, he'll have to go to his drop-dead gorgeous, neglected, misunderstood, Bedouin babe of the desert. No one will ever know. No one will ever know. And God will forgive me after all. After all, he said that the, that, that, that the king will never depart from my throne. God will forgive me. I still have all of those points because of the giant that I slew and the promise that he made that my family would reign forever. David inquires how things are going. Because sin makes you insensitive. And sin makes you crazy. And you don't really think about the important issues of life like war and the lives of other. This is all an act. This is a sham. He's pretending that everything's fine. He's pretending that he cares, but he doesn't care. He just doesn't want to get caught. And that's what happens when you hide your sin. David kills the fatted calf and makes Middle Eastern fajitas. He says, Uriah, shawarma, right here, right now. It's all you can eat. And in verse 8, and David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. By the way, washing your feet is a Middle Eastern expression. It's an idiom, which means have sex with your wife. That's what that means. I know it sounds crazy in the Bible, but that's exactly what it means. So Uriah departed from the king's house and a gift of food from the king followed him. 
But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of the Lord, and he didn't go down to his house. David can manipulate his wife, but he can't manipulate her husband. You know why? This makes matters worse. Uriah is an honorable man. And at this moment, he's even more honorable than the king. And David is rebuked by the simple integrity of a simple soldier. But does he feel remorse? Does he go, wait a minute, this is way out of hand. This is stupid. This is crazy. We have to stop it. It has to stop. We have to stop it right now. But he's insensitive. He's insensitive. He feels no remorse. He's busted. And he wants a way out. And plan B isn't working. Plan A is not an option. Plan B isn't working. And so now he goes with plan C in verse 12 and 13. I'll get him drunk. I'll get him drop dead stinking drunk I will get him so stinking drunk that the animal instincts will kick in he will go home stripped down he'll be so stinking drunk he won't even remember Abraham's last name I know you're thinking Abraham didn't have a last name (laughs) see you're already intoxicated And it doesn't work. Verse 13, now when David called him, he ate and drank before him and he made him drunk. And at evening he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to the house. And in the morning it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. Now David is... Angry. It's a combination of anger and fear. And when you combine anger and fear coupled with panic, he's completely forgotten about God. He's snake bit. No matter how David tries to proceed with his lies, no matter how he tries to proceed with the hypocrisy and the scheme, no matter how he tries to go forward in his wickedness, nothing is working. He can steal the man's wife. He can't manipulate him. Everything that he's tried to do doesn't work. And now he's trapped by his own fear and he's trapped by the fear of the consequence. And so he does the unthinkable. He plots how to kill an innocent man for no other reason reason that he has inconvenienced his life. Do you, do you really think someone would kill someone just because they made life difficult for someone? Would someone kill someone because he threatened my lifestyle, because he threatened my future, because he threatened my standing in the community? 
You know, many women have felt this overwhelming panic. They become pregnant. And the guy skips out. And their hearts race. And she says, I can't afford to be pregnant. I won't finish high school. My dad will kill me. My mom will hate me. My belly will swell. People will laugh. My sin will be known. Let's kill the child. Let's abort the baby. No one needs to know. Oh, God will know, but he won't really care. But if he cares, maybe, maybe he'll forgive me. And David sends Uriah away with his own death warrant. He places in his own hand a bill of non-existence. And Joab knew exactly what David wanted. David handed Joab the tools needed for blackmail. And he charged the messenger saying, when you finish telling the matters of the war to the king, if it happens that the king's wrath rises and he says to you, why did you approach so near to the city when you fought? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Joab's response is, I have something on David. If things go bad because of my bad leadership or my dad bad decisions, if things go that, he, that people die who he actually really cares about, Just say that Uriah is dead and that will cheer him up. See, we laughed, but do you see the depths of depravity and wickedness? And he he writes and says, So the messenger went in verse 22 and came and told David that Joab had sent by him. And the messenger said to David, Surely the men prevailed against us and came out to us in the field. And we drove them back as far as the entrance of the gate. The archers shot from the wall at your servants. And some of the king's servants are dead. And your servant Uriah Hittite is dead also. No, hey, that makes it okay. Hey, you win some, you lose some. Then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as the other. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and so encourage him. And when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And by the way, the Holy Spirit refers to her never as Bathsheba. But always as Uriah, the wife of Uriah. By the way, centuries later in the book of Matthew, when it gives the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, verse 6, it says, David the king begot Solomon by her, who had been the wife of Uriah. Do you understand what you're reading? You're reading the genealogy of Jesus' past. And in Jesus' past, as a grandpa and a grandma 
who did what seemed like unexcusable things. And then in verse 27, it says, And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. It seems too small, doesn't it? Swindoll writes, quote, In that brief statement, we see the raw, open sewage of David's life. As the Puritan said, all the moisture of heaven had lapsed into drought. Everything was dry and barren in his soul. The sweet singer of Israel was now living a lie. He was faking his existence in a minor key. This passionate, handsome king, this exemplary leader, now lives in the shadow of his own palace. He no longer goes out to battle. He shrivels into something he was never designed to be. Because he deliberately compromised with wrong and then deceitfully covered the matter. But God isn't done with David. God is going to have to confront David. God is going to have to bring David face to face with his own sin. And that is really the real question. That's the real question for you. The real question isn't to discuss someone else's sin. But it's to be prepared to face our own. It's being prepared to face our own. And the thing that makes us least likely to face it is because we can't believe that God could take the consequences and cause all things to work together for good for those that love him who are the called according to his purposes. But the moment you're willing to face the consequences of obedience, there's freedom, there's forgiveness, there's joy. There's a future. But for David, this is going to press him. And it's not going to just press him for a day. And it's not just going to press him for a week. And it's not just going to depress him for a month. But it's going to press him over and over and over again until his sin is exposed and it will be exposed. But that's for next week. But that's what the cross of Calvary does also. It forces us to confront our own sin. It reminds us why a Savior even came in the first place. That David's future famous son is going to be the one who's going to take care of every hideous and wicked thing. You know how sometimes churches gather together, they take photos, and then they have their own little photo gallery. Or sometimes churches come and they exchange recipes. But can you imagine if you anonymously wrote a chapter in a new Bible confessing that thing that you did that you would hope that no one would ever find out? 
And then you thank God for Jesus. And you thank God that he died on the cross for your sin. And that it is the Lord Jesus Christ in his grace and in his mercy and in his love chose the way of suffering and sacrifice in order to make you cleansed, forgiven, free. I know some of you think, I wonder what it would be like to have an honorable mention in the Bible. And then you realize, hmm. What if the Lord said, I'm more than happy to give you an honorable mention if you're willing to disclose the dishonorable facts. It's okay. I think I'll pass. But guess what? Jesus is in heaven willing to burn your film if you'll let him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that your grace covers our sin, that we're saved by grace through faith. It's the gift of God, lest any of us should boast. That, Lord, you are willing to extend to us a full and free pardon if we'll place our confidence in Jesus. And, Lord, it seems impossible for me to imagine anyone who would rather have their sin than the Savior, who would rather walk in rebellion and disobedience, detachment than attachment and grace and mercy and love. Lord, if we could have a clear conscience, why not? And so, Heavenly Father, I pray for that person. I pray for that person who has been traumatized and victimized and isolated and filled with fear because they think that one day their sin will find them out. But Lord, I pray, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, you would reveal to that person exactly how they can go forward in love. How they can confess their sin, knowing that you are faithful and just to forgive that sin. That they can turn from that sin and that they can embrace you for all of the love and the joy that you have available. Lord, for that person who sinned privately, Lord, I pray that they can whisper private confessions. And for the person who has sinned openly and willfully, Lord, we know that sin always involves more than one person. There's always the sinner. And there's always the Savior. And so, Heavenly Father, I pray that each man and each woman would examine their heart that, Lord, we would thank you and praise you for the grace and the mercy that's offered to us in Jesus. And that as we partake of these communion elements, Lord, that we would remind ourselves that your sacrifice, your sacrifice is the satisfying solution to the problem of our personal sin. And that David's son would satisfy the problem of Abraham's sin. And David's sin. And my sin. In Jesus name. Amen.